It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. Today we have a very exciting episode. I am joined once again by my partner, Andy. Andy, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So about two and a half years ago, Andy came on the show to talk about her major pain. Andy, what is your major pain? My major pain? Well. (laughs) Don't say me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes. Uh, My major pain uh, is um, a pituitary adenoma. And the resulting hormonal imbalance uh, of that adenoma. Yeah. And so we have a big update for Andy's story today. Right. Uh, Before we jump into that, I have to say an extra special thank you to our Patreon producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Thank you so much for the continued support. If you're interested in joining our Patreon community, you can have episodes just like this with Andy and I once a month. Yeah. That are always super fun. Patreon.com slash Major Pain Podcast. And I will remind you, as always, that my guest and I are not medical professionals. No. So please, please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. Everything else you need to know about supporting Major Pain is on our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support. And as we jump into this episode today, you know, in the introduction, I often like to share uh responses to the podcast when we hear from the community. And I didn't even tell you this, Andy, but yesterday we got a comment on the website on your episode from two and a half years ago. No way. Yesterday. That's so wild. I know. I didn't tell you because I wanted to save it for today. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So let's look at this comment. This is from Eva. It says, just wanted to say that at about 23 years old, I was diagnosed at Mayo Clinic with a pituitary adenoma which secreted prolactin. Mm. I am in my early 60s now and have had five kids. Wow. They are all healthy adults and have kids. After being diagnosed, I decided to have the surgery recommended, but ended up with a residual tumor. I took uh, Parlodel slash Bromocryptine, and it did allow me to to be pregnant and have children. Wow. Five live births and two miscarriages. Wow. I did have anxiety and other mental symptoms, Mm. but no one ever told me that they could be a result of having a pituitary tumor. Hmm. At times, I thought I was going crazy. I did also go to Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago and saw Dr. Antonio Scamenia, who was a pioneer of the problem. Hmm. Hearing about Andy's experience was a familiar one, and I'm happy to hear that these symptoms were part of her pituitary problems. Wow. Yeah, so I've had a lot of responses over the years since we recorded your episode uh, sort of talking about this idea that doctors are not letting patients know that emotional mm-hmm. symptoms can result from having a prolactinoma, a sure. pituitary adenoma sure. that secretes prolactin. Yeah. So I know that that for you was something that was <laughs> a, a, a huge question for mm-hmm. years. So yeah. how does it feel to get that comment the day before we're about to update on your yeah, story? That is so wild. I... I Amazing. I mean, I thank you so much, Eva. Eva. Eva, yeah. for reaching out and sharing your story. And um, you know, there's there have been a few things that have happened through connecting from my episode that I mean, first of all, well, <laughs> I don't want to jump the gun here, but we uh I had a surgery. Yeah. <laughs> and really the the ultimate reason that 
happened or at least that I was connected to the doctor that eventually led me to do that and um, was through a listener of the show who reached out and um, shared with me her experience. And she she and I had a ton of things in common, including OCD and that connection of that to the prolactinoma potentially. And she was also is also a Seattle local. So um, she had all this advice and thoughts, and I'll get into it in the full episode. But And then there's someone else who reached out that I would actually really love to connect to. I, I have not yet, but I wanted to wait until I had um, better perspective on what the surgery had done for me because um, yeah. they were kind of seeking advice about considering the surgery, which honestly, that is such a huge, huge decision. Or it feels like one, certainly when you when you enter this journey. And um so interesting to know everyone's is so individual. I mean, there's all this overlap, including the lack of education around or research into or evidence for, I don't know, the connection of these mental and emotional side effects of the adenoma. Um, but I think ultimately it's really logical to my mind to connect these things because Mm -hmm. when you think about how people talk about puberty how people talk about pregnancy how people talk about menstruation and the emotional and mental side effects of those hormonal shifts you know there's there's a ton of of evidence and conversation around hormones being related to your mental health and your emotional state I mean that that's undeniable. And so it's interesting that it doesn't enter the conversation as much with a with a growth that literally is on the gland that affects all of those hormones. And there's so much harm being done by that not being a part of the conversation, which yeah. is a huge part of why we're reconvening to talk about this again today. Yeah, totally. Because as you mentioned, you did get the surgery. Right. And, you know, two and a half years ago when you were on the podcast, we were talking about your journey with medication so far and trying to find ways to manage the symptoms from the prolactinoma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, years later, it just wasn't manageable and you ended up having to do the surgery. (laughs) But we're we're jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit. Yeah, we are, we are, we are. So there's got to be people listening who either haven't heard the first episode or maybe uh, heard it when it came out two and a half years ago. (laughs) Yeah. So let's let's do a couple reminders. What is... A pituitary adenoma. Yes, totally. And I will be the first to admit, and I this is an interesting feature of the show too. It's I I think there is probably a lot more to know about this than I do. And I always feel undereducated on a thing that's happening in my own body. So um, if I misspeak or if, you know, I this is just my experience and my knowledge based on what I've been through and what I've researched. And so um but but I have spent a fair amount of time looking into this, so hopefully it'll be fairly accurate. But um, yes, so a pituitary adenoma is a growth on the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland sits, you know, like right below the brain, um, kind of up through the back of the sinuses, right behind the sphenoid bone. And uh, it's a gland that regulates all of your, I believe all of your hormones, certainly all of your um, sex hormones. So you know, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, and prolactin is another big one. And so the type of adenoma I have, the type of growth, it's usually a benign tumor, by the way, which is 
very fortunate. I it was, I mean, to hear, oh, you have a, you have a tumor in near your brain was very scary, you know, and, and uh, come to find out that, that a high percentage of these are benign, but they, in terms of if they are cancerous, but they are not benign in terms of their effect on your hormones. Although there's a huge range there, range there as well, depending on where the tumor is on the gland, how big it is, um, all kinds of other things. So for me, I had what's called a prolactinoma, which is a growth that is on the part of the gland that affects prolactin. And the my prolactin, when it grows on that part of the gland, it's elevated. So prolactin in the average um, person who's assigned female at birth that isn't pregnant, that's my age, would be in the zero to 25 range. And my, over the past, gosh, I guess six years that I've yeah. had this, wow. um, my prolactin has kind of gone all over the place, but it was never it never dipped below like 70 and it uh, went all the way up to like 198. Oh my God. Yeah. So. Um, Overachiever. I know. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and that, and that some of those things were, were affected by going on and off different medications to try to regulate this. Um, but yes. And the other thing to note, and it took me so long to understand this, um, which is, you know, that's another part of this journey has been all of the ways that this affects my body and and just overall what what is happening because of it. It took me so long to internalize it and understand it between going to different doctors and living with it for long enough and not knowing what questions to ask. And, you know, so um, what I didn't realize for a very long time was that when your prolactin is that elevated, it blocks your production of estrogen and progesterone, or or it does at least in a in a person like me. So um, I don't know how it would affect a person assigned male at birth, and but for me that that's what happens. So um, you know, I basically was on birth control. I have been since I was like twenty two years old, and um, what I didn't realize is even if I'd wanted to, I couldn't go off the birth control, or if I did, I'd have to start taking other synthetic hormones so that my body would make estrogen and progesterone. So um, so not only was it heightening my, my prolactin, but it also blocks the creation of other hormones. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> a long answer to your question, but yeah. that that's kind of the what I understand about what's happening physically. Yeah. And in the first episode, which is a great episode that, you know, if you are very interested in this topic, I highly recommend going back to listen to. I'll put a link in the uh, the show notes for this episode. You talked a lot about the mental and emotional toll of this thing developing. Yeah. You know, we yeah. were we were just together in, in our first year of dating mm-hmm. when this happened. And there yeah. was, you know, a huge spike in OCD symptoms. Yeah. Um, and then we went to talk to the doctor and he's like, oh, yeah, I've never heard of that happening before. Mm-hmm. And you really sort of, um, you know, I, my feeling the whole time was like, this has to be related. You know, yeah. you're having mental and emotional symptoms that started right when we discovered something, uh-huh. a, a tumor on your pituitary gland. Yeah. But because the doctor didn't, you know, validate that, you started to like gaslight yourself about it. Mm-hmm. And that lasted for years. Mm-hmm. And this like self-doubt 
I mean, I think that it never really stopped, you know, this like yeah. self-doubt of uh, what's happening to me. Do I have like a mental and emotional problem and a hormonal problem mm-hmm. or is it one thing combined? Yeah. And that, that seemed to just weigh on you the entirety of the time that you've been dealing with this. Definitely. I mean, so yeah. So, so my original episode, um, what it really covered was sort of this, I mean, a lot of things about the prolactinoma, but this sort of intersection between intrusive thoughts in particular yeah, yeah. and the um, rise in those for me and then the discovery of my pituitary adenoma. So my first side effect, my first sign that something was off, I was in New York, I was working on a show um, we were early in our dating and we were on a, actually we were, I don't remember if I've actually told you this specifically, but we were on a Zoom or, I mean, I don't think it was Zoom at that time. It was some sort of FaceTime or something call. Skype. Skype. It probably was. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, um, and I had this really, um, and I mentioned this in the other episode as well. I'm not going to talk too much about the specifics of my intrusive thoughts because that can, especially for people that have them, that can be um, sort of a something they can attach to and then sure. internalize. So, but I had a really major intrusive thought, and I had experienced some of these when I was younger, right around when I was going through puberty, which is really interesting. Um, and for those who don't know, intrusive thoughts, th- there's a huge range of of what that can look like. Um, but on the scale that I was experiencing it, it was it's a thought for me in my mind um, that goes completely against anything I'd want to think against my character and it's, it, it won't go away. It, it, it's like your mind is never at rest and you're constantly having this thought and it's super distressing. And um, it occurred to me while we were on, it happened when we were on that call. Wow. And then um, when we hung up, I, I mean, for days I wasn't sleeping. I could hardly eat. Um, I, I couldn't remember what to do with my mind. Like, what do you do with your mind if you're not having this thought over and over? <laughs> like to be so aware of your thinking constantly, it, it's it's exhausting. Like and it and it's so disconcerting, and you feel like you are losing it. Like I, I was like, I'm going to be in a mental institution. There's mm-hmm. no question. I so you know I I hadn't actually been diagnosed with OCD at that time. Um, because they felt when I had gone through it as a younger person, I also have ADHD and they thought, I guess the child psychologist associated with that and it went away and da, 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 da. There's a lot that we could do a whole episode about OCD, um, which this is not, but, uh, but basically I had not experienced this sort of thing in my adult life. And, um, it was horrifying. It was so scary. And I knew something was wrong, but I, you know, you, I mean, you would not go from there to, oh, I must have a pituitary. <laughs> no. Sure. Um, what happened next was the the next day, um, I, you know, I was uh, after that call and I was still really struggling with the intrusive thoughts and I was really spinning out and I hadn't slept and all this stuff. And I started to lactate <laughs> and I was like, okay, something is really going on with me and I don't understand it. This is so strange. I ran out and got a pregnancy test. Like I was so confused and I shared 
all of these um, symptoms with my doctor, with my GP. And he said, okay, well, you're out of town right now. Um, I, you know, I'm going to send you to a psychiatrist in New York today um, so that you can get a prescription for at least an anti-anxiety and a sleeping aid. Because, I mean, yeah. this was, you know, four year, four days into this and I wasn't, I just, it, I wasn't functioning. And so I went to see the psychiatrist out there and um, got these prescriptions. But when I got back to Seattle, they they ran tests and the lactation is the only reason that they looked for a pituitary adenoma. Which is so interesting yeah. looking back. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, and even at that time, with with even with that aligning of those exact events, um, the doctors I was seeing, including the endocrinologist, you know, were kind of saying, "Well, I don't really know if those are related." Yeah, you know, um, which is interesting. However, I will say this: the psychiatrist I was seeing said, and I think this is actually really helpful to just keep in mind in general, is that a lot of mental health challenges have a biological component and a psychological component. Mm. And you can be predisposed to have the psychological component and then have a biological trigger that sets it off or um, increases the intensity of it. And for something like OCD, once your mind is already sort of in that groove that psychological component of being predisposed to thinking this way or to to kind of create these patterns, even if the biological component is low, for me, what I've noticed is after this event, I've never completely, I haven't been without intrusive thoughts. Yeah. But I, over time, and certainly with the changing of my hormones and the medications and all that, have experienced spikes and also dips. And what I will also say is that for me, just looking at the OCD side alone, exposure therapy has been huge. Getting a therapist that specializes in OCD and also just time. That has actually been the biggest thing for me for that component of this experience is living with intrusive thoughts long enough to know how to address it when it arises to know that. So for example, a lot of intrusive thoughts are in the realm of this, I think is a safe example, um, which I believe I used on the last episode, but you're driving a car, right? And you're thinking, okay, I'm going to, I could just turn the wheel and really bad stuff could happen, you know? And I actually think that's pretty normal. Like I think, and I don't want to use the word normal in that way, but I I think that's common. I think that thought could occur to you and then you'd go, okay, well, well, that's kind of wild. And then you keep driving, right? But for someone with intrusive thoughts, that thought would occur to you. And then it's every second of your drive, you are consciously going, oh my gosh, am I going to turn the wheel? I hope I don't turn the wheel. What happens if I do? What did it do? You know, and then, then every time you get in a car, suddenly that narrative just clicks on and you can't. So that's the kind of thing um, that it's like. And so the longer you live driving the car and not turning the wheel, even though these thoughts are occurring to you, um, the more when they arise, you go, oh yeah, I recognize that. I'm not going to turn the wheel. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Um so that that's sort of I know that's not totally on topic, but that that's 
the the correlation between these things is it, there's definitely something there and one last thing i'll say about it is i know that for people who are being treated for ocd there are certain medications that they actually look out for a rise in your prolactin levels if you're taking mm. it and um so that feels like some sort of connection. And the other thing is when I did have my surgery, which we'll get into, but literally hours after my surgery, I'm sitting there in the recovery room and this team of doctors, because I was at a teaching hospital, um, came in that were kind of learning and studying these types of things. And they asked me about increase in wanting to wash my hands. Oh, really? In Yeah. In in oh, They asked about a lot of OCD type symptoms. So yeah. I think there is beginning maybe to be some research in this field. I hope it gets more in depth and I hope they find some more support. And I hope they train doctors to also be more sensitive to that. Um, because it's really disheartening to have an experience that upsetting and to have a doctor kind of say, I don't, I don't know that these are related. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, you know, quick fast forward, you were diagnosed, you tried yeah. cabergoline, which didn't work. You switched mm-hmm. to bromocryptine, yep. which did help. Yeah. Which is usually, I want to say the reverse of what they, so they right. started me on cabergoline because typically people respond more, um, Immediately to that, the the results are better and the side effects tend to be less severe for folks. For me, I had the exact opposite experience. Yeah. Um, I was on a very low dose and I was already experiencing a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fatigue. And I my numbers were not going down really hardly at all. Yeah. And then you switched to bromocryptine. But and- I actually took, I didn't immediately. I took time off. Right. And I thought, well you know, I can live with this. And uh, <laughs> and I, at first, so the thing about the medication journey for me is that the medication has really challenging side effects. And a lot of them actually overlap with the side effects of having high prolactin right. for me. And so, you know, emotional dysregulation, um, serious lack of energy, um, headaches, nausea, right? So, um what would happen for me, what had did happen on my me- medicine journey is I started taking cabergoline. All of these side effects started hitting me, but my prolactin did go down a little bit, you know, back, I mean, probably by the end of my time taking it by 15 to 20 points, which is not nothing. But when you're at 175 it's and you're supposed to be at 25, <laughs> it's not you know, encouraging. Yeah. So, um, and they kept us upping the dosage by a little bit. And each time the side effects were huge and the decrease in the prolactin was minuscule. So there just wasn't an even play there. And so I, at the the endocrinologist I was seeing at the time, I was like, hey, this isn't working. And he said, yeah, okay. And I said, what, what do you think about me just going off? And he said, yeah, I have patients that do that. You can do that. What I didn't know was that going off... Um, you know, the, the chances that your adenoma is going to grow are higher. And you can't just necessarily be off for your whole life because this hormonal imbalance for someone like me that really is experiencing side effects of it, it's going to come back. And so I went off and at first I felt great. And I felt great for a pretty good amount of time because my prolactin was a little lower. I wasn't experiencing the side effects of the medication. 
But then as soon as my prolactin started to spike again, I felt horrible. Yeah. And so we had to find another solution. And there was only one other medication. There's only two medications to address high prolactin. So cabergoline and bromocryptine. And so I took bromocryptine. I tolerated it a lot better. Um, again, I started on a really low dose. And then a few months in, we we continued to increase the dosage and all that over time. And my numbers started to drop pretty, pretty well. And but they weren't quite going fast enough. So we kept upping the dosage and we finally reached a dosage that we felt if I had stayed on it at that dosage for a year and a half, I could probably get my prolactin down to the normal range. We would have no idea if it would shrink the tumor or dissolve the tumor. Um, that was not guaranteed even remotely. And I'd have to be on for a year and a half to even know that. And at that point, at that dosage, the side effects were really rough. That was three pills a day, right? Yeah. I think this is where we're now beyond the story from the original episode. Okay, yeah. Yeah, where you're taking three pills a day. Yeah. And you're just miserable. Horrible. I, yeah. I, so I'm not someone, I mean, obviously you can you can tell I'm someone that has struggled with different um, mental challenges, but I had never really experienced depression like this. Um, and I had experienced depression over the course of this journey I in different ways. But by the time I got to this three pill dosage on bromocryptine, I wasn't having, um, and I just want to say a little warning about talking about suicidal thoughts. Um, I wasn't having them though. I, I do want to say, uh, but I was starting to understand mm. how your brain can go there. Yeah. And I was starting to have this feeling of worthlessness that I had never experienced this thing of like, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm not doing anything for the world. I'm not, um, worthy of anything. I'm sitting in my bed most of the day feeling miserable and I don't know how it's going to get better. And it's so interesting to look back on that now because it's so clear to me how much that was something I couldn't control. I mean, that was yeah. the the medication. That was the hormonal imbalance. That was all of the chemical things happening in my body. But when you're in it, it feels so real. It feels so much like, oh, my brain, you don't go to, oh yeah, I'm just struggling with something and it's going to get better. Your brain, I don't, I, it's really hard to describe, especially when you're out of it. Yeah. You're feeling the emotions the way that you normally would. So yeah. It, yeah. it takes, it takes a lot of time and skill and effort to, right. to learn how to disassociate like uh, a medically induced emotional symptom versus a emotionally induced emotional symptom. Right. And right. it's something I have some experience with as well. You know, when my, yeah. when I have bad flare ups, sometimes it like hits my mood and I'll just feel like irrational things. And yeah. it, it yeah. took me years to, to disconnect those two things. Yes. Like this is a message that I talk about a lot is like being chronically ill doesn't mean that you are depressed. Yeah. You know, sometimes they go together, but you can pull them apart. Right. And, for you, like when it first hit, it, it, you're a novice at yeah. learning how to separate those things. Sure. And at first, it just feels like it's your emotions. And like, yeah. how are you supposed to know yeah. what's what? It's kind of impossible to know. Well, and I will also say depression, it's not one color. It's actually a quite a dynamic thing to experience, even though... <laughs> 
that sounds funny because depression in some ways just feels like this freaking weighted blanket that just like sits there and does nothing. But but having experienced different levels of depression or different types of depression, I can say there was a distinct shift from this feeling like, okay, I taking a shower makes me want to cry. Yeah. Different feeling than I don't know what I'm doing on this earth and I don't understand how my existence can go on like this. Yeah. Those are different feelings. And when it all becomes this wash, it it's but when that when that distinction happened, that's when I knew I had to get off that med. Yeah. Because that I I have I have navigated a lot of challenging things through this journey emotionally and mentally, but that was something different. And it wasn't all the way down the road of I'm going to do something about it, but I could see how that road led there. And I just could I just and you know, unfortunately for some people, they don't get to then make the choice I'm going to stop taking this medication and get out of this mindset, you know? And I did, yeah. I thought a lot about that too. It's like, and when you're in it, you know, luckily I have such an amazing community and, and supportive people around me and voices like yours telling me, this is not you. This yeah. is something external that is causing this. There is a way out. There is a solution. And actually for a lot of people, the answer is getting on meds, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> I mean, it's everybody's journey is so individual, but I just want to say, you know, um, that was a human experience that I knew people who had gone through it and I had never experienced myself. And it is, it's such a tricky thing to talk about and such a tricky thing to feel. And now outside of it, I can look back and be like, oh yeah, of course. I could get out of that. That was temporary. That was, but when you're in it, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. You know, some, as you mentioned, something that came from us doing the first podcast is that you were contacted by Sydney, who is someone who's lived through something very similar. And she connected you to a female endocrinologist in yeah. Seattle. Mm -hmm. So you switched to this, you know, to Sydney's doctor, which was like a huge change. Yeah. Uh, and I went to an appointment with you and at that appointment, she was talking about, okay, we really have to up your dose of bromocryptine, uh, but you know, you should really consider the surgery as well. Because yeah. I've talked to a lot of patients who get this, you know, sort of agonize over whether or not to get the surgery for years, and then they finally do it, and then they just think to themselves, man, this was so much easier than being on the medication, <laughs> and I wish I'd done this years ago. Yeah. So the whole time this is happening, like externally, yeah. I, I'm just watching you your like emotional state sort of crumble on this yeah. medication. Yeah. And to me, it's just like 1000% clear that it is the medication doing mm -hmm. this to you. Mm -hmm. By the time you get up to three pills a day, like you're barely making it through the day. Yeah. You know, you're really struggling to do any like physical activity and you're someone who loves to exercise. Yeah. Um, your emotional state is just kind of swirling down and down. Mm -hmm. And I'm out there just like, we, let's, let's get the surgery. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and there's a few things I want to say about that, which is yeah. that, first of all, my first endocrinologist did was not encouraging of getting the surgery. Yeah. Um, was kind of saying, you want to try all options before right. you do that. And so was my GP. But my GP had a patient who had had a pituitary adenoma, who had responded really well to the meds, and who was on them for most of their life and had no problem. And so, of course, that perspective right. is like, 
oh, well, why would you get a surgery near your brain when you can just keep trying these other options? And actually, I think that person went on the meds, took them at a high dosage for a certain amount of time for long enough that the tumor went away on its own. because, yeah. Or not on its own, but because of the meds, yeah. which is a thing that people can experience. Totally. And a lot of people... First of all, a lot of people have pituitary adenomas and don't even know it because there's no side effect and it's so small that you're not look if you're not looking for it, you're not going to see it. And also a lot of people have a pituitary adenoma and they take the meds and they respond really well and it's no problem or not no problem, but it's very easy to manage. Yeah, absolutely. So it was I, worth a try. I'm not saying it yeah, wasn't worth no, a try. No, but but all to say I thought of the surgery as this like absolute last ditch effort risky thing I was watching these videos about like you can't sneeze within a year of having the surgery or air is going to get in your brain like I was just (laughs) really you know um, I just really thought like that is just not really an option and you'd never had a big surgery, so you were very no. scared of, yes. of doing that. Well, and that is the other thing that I want to speak to, and it also connects to the dep- depression piece, is that also during this period, I'm a singer, I'm a, a performer, um, and my voice is a, a huge part of who I am. <laughs> yeah. And I had two vocal hemorrhages yeah. during this time, one of which prevented me from going on in a show that I'd been working on for like five years. Yeah. Um, and finally got a production. And I literally, the the like night before we open, I have this vocal hemorrhage. And um, and then months later, after I recover finally, I have another one and uh had to get surgery for that. And that was the first surgery I'd ever had. And I will also say that didn't help with the depression piece because, for sure, you know that was so a lot. You know that's another thing about depression um, that can be a little tricky is because a lot of this happened during COVID. Oh my god! I had a lot of personal losses of loved ones happen in a row, and I also had this vocal hemorrhage, and so life was happening in a way that was like, well, of course I'm depressed. You know, yeah. I wasn't thinking, oh yeah, that can happen, and also you can experience depression. Um, so just to say it was really hard to parse all of that out absolutely but I did have this surgery on my vocal cords and I was really anxious about it Um, I'd never I'd only ever been put under once and it was to get a I think they called an endoscopy just to like Mm -hmm. they discovered I had a um, hiatal hernia years back Um, but it was a very mild procedure you know went home the same day all of that so this was my first surgery and you know, in a way, I guess, I'm glad that I had a little warm-up surgery before I did the it big one. It really warmed you up to the idea of getting surgery. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, and that's a whole other, I mean, the vocal hemorrhage is a whole yeah. other story. <laughs> and we talked about that a lot on the bonus episodes, including yeah, yeah. one month where Andy yeah. couldn't speak and yeah. we used a text-to-speech robot yeah. named yep. Nikki. Yes. Well, we named her Nikki. We did. That That's a classic yep. of the bonus podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and she responded for me and she did a great job. Yeah. I mean, I also, be over the course of the two hemorrhages and then the recovery from the surgery, I there were six weeks of this past year that I could not speak. Yeah. Or the, I guess not past calendar year, but, you know, basically of that period that I could not speak at all. And there were an additional like two and a half to three weeks where I could only speak for five minutes each hour or I could only hum or I, Mm -hmm. you know, so, I mean, I spent a lot of time not speaking 
<laughs> and, um, you know, the other thing is when you do that, you become very aware of your internal world. <laughs> um, so, you know, what I knew was I couldn't keep going on this way and yeah. I needed a solution. And I had tried the only other two options for managing this. Um, there, there were, there was a clinic, uh, that was like a hormonal naturopathic thing that I had reached out to. They'd never gotten back to me, but I kept thinking to myself, I want to leave no stone unturned before I get this surgery. You know, yeah. I kept thinking, I kept having this fear of what if it's the wrong choice? What if it doesn't go well? What if there's a complication and I regret it? And I I was having a lot of fear and anxiety around getting the surgery and a lot of self-gaslighting mm-hmm. about it as well. I remember at the beginning, so I had the surgery in um, October, at the end of October, and I remember at the beginning, but I had I had scheduled it way in advance because you kind of have to take six weeks, depending on what your job is, but as an actor for sure, six weeks off of work. So I I planned it way out. And I remember at the beginning of the summer saying to myself, I could just be feeling all of these things because I'm not doing enough to feel good. Right. And uh, I'm going to yeah. make every effort I can before the surgery to feel good because if I do that then I can prove to myself that I it's worth getting the surgery if I don't feel good. You scheduled the surgery before deciding to get the surgery. I know. Like you I really know. Uh, you Yeah. I I had been feeling for a while like it was the right choice, but I really tried as hard as I could yeah. to not push yeah. and to not sort of assert my opinion cuz uh-huh. you know I, obviously, like I'm your partner. Yeah, we live together. Yeah, we just had our seven year anniversary recently. Like we've been together for a while. Yeah, but it's not my place to right. insist upon what you do with your body. And right. I try. I but I had a very strong feeling that the surgery was going to be the right call. But par- partially also because I've had so many procedures at this point. Yeah, you know, I've had a lot of. I've been put under so many times for small things mm-hmm. like. You know, the liver biopsy, upper and lower endoscopy, like, or, or upper endoscopy and colonoscopy, like, I've done all that in the past. Mm-hmm. And then I've also had a couple big surgeries. Yeah. When I had testicular cancer, I had the orchiectomy. Yeah. I had a septoplasty for a deviated septum. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, that was, that one didn't go quite as planned. But even then, mm-hmm. um, I've come to really trust surgery. Like, yeah. I feel like there's so much about the medical system I don't trust. Yeah. But at, at the University of Washington, when you get a surgery, like, they're, their people are so good and oh, they, they're so, so highly trained Well, and th- yeah. you're in such good hands. Absolutely. And I want to point back to Sydney again at this point in the conversation because first of all, she was so generous in this process with her time and her experience. And she and actually her husband came yeah. over to our house and talked to me and Jesse. We about, had brunch. We did. We had a <laughs> Andy, great- Andy made a frittata. Yeah, frittata, <laughs> some fruit salad, you know. Um, but we- they both talked to us about what their experience was. It was so helpful. It made yeah. me feel so much more assured. And the other thing is that she had, because I had switched to her endocrinologist, she had the exact same surgical team yeah. I did. And actually, what's kind of amazing is, so my endocrinologist, the one I switched to is at the UW, and my surgeon is like one of the leading surgeons in this procedure in the whole country. Yeah. So, you know, I... I was in really good hands. Yeah. And even with all of that, I felt so nervous. I felt so unsure. Yeah. I felt so scared that I was going to get all of this 
and A, have a complication or B, have no complication, but on the other side of it go, nothing's different. Right. Nothing has changed. I feel the exact same way. And I got a freaking brain surgery. You know, like I had so many fears and anxieties. And also it was helpful to talk to Sydney because OCD interacts with uncertainty in this really direct way. Uh, The the, (laughs) the fuel for OCD often is uncertainty. Wanting to be certain is a lot of what comes from those compulsions and those thoughts of like, I just want to know. And you can't be certain with a thing like surgery, right? Yeah, totally. And so it was really scary. It was a huge leap. And um, we had a a Zoom telehealth with the doctor. I think it's okay to share his name. Don't you think? I think so. Dr. Ferreira. Yeah. Uh, Manny. Yeah. And we both got a really good vibe from him. Yeah. I was like, this man is very tan. (laughs) You know, (laughs) he looks, he looks great. Uh, And that's, I don't know why that's a good sign. Yeah, or, he looked healthy. He can yeah. help me get healthy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I'm like, that's this logic. man looks like he plays a lot of golf. I don't know. <laughs> um, and we both got a good vibe from, from him. He said a lot of things that I found to be very encouraging about mm-hmm. the long-term success rate. Yeah. Because, um, you know, the, the email that I shared at the beginning of this podcast talking about a regrowth, you know, like, that's something that you were very scared about. It's like, what if I yeah. get the surgery and it comes back? Yeah. But- um, this surgeon, Dr. Ferreira, you know, has a very high success rate for not having a regrowth because of the way he does the surgery, which we'll talk about when we get to the actual surgery. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and he also something to look for you, which I think is common knowledge, but worth mentioning. You want whatever procedure you're getting, you want a surgeon that does this all the time. Yeah, and this surgery, when he's in clinic for it, he does eight of these a week. You know, like he he. This when we ended up going in for the pre-op with the um, the care team, the his his main nurse practitioner was like, "This in terms of brain surgery, this is routine. Yeah, on the scale of brain surgery, this is like you know, yeah, as, as basic as you can get. That's you know, what they told me when I had cancer. Like I had <laughs> testicular cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're yeah. like, if you're gonna get a cancer, this is the best one to get. <laughs> you know, this is the one that's the most routine for the surgery, yeah, like the least. Yeah. Long-term complications. They were saying the same type of stuff to you. Yeah. So I felt really good about it. Right. And after we had that initial meeting with Dr. Ferreira, you scheduled the surgery because without deciding to do it, there was just like the practicality of you had these shows Mm -hmm. and like these family trips coming up and the holidays. It's like there's only one place in the entire year where this could even possibly fit because of the length of the the recovery. Right. And even then I had to really, once I had booked it, I had to multiple times decide to say no to certain opportunities or yeah. auditions or things because it would overlap. And there were moments in there where I was like, well, maybe I'll just go in. And if the show is really great, maybe that's a sign right. that I shouldn't get the surgery. You know, you I was looking just for looking every reason 100%. not to do it. But and there, that, that thing you said of like, I'm an, I'm going to, you told me I'm going to take the summer yeah. and I'm going to really try to work on being happy. And I'm going to do everything that I can yeah, to yeah. lift myself out of this yeah. and then hopefully not get the surgery. Yeah. yeah. So, so that leads to my big question. Yeah. What, was the moment when did you decide to actually do it? Because we had it booked for months before you decided <laughs> to do it. There's a certain point of no return where you're just like, I'm not canceling it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. What drove you over the line to actually decide to do this thing? Well, that's an interesting question. So all along, obviously, there is a small. There was a small voice in me that said, 
this is what you need to do. Mm. And it was so much quieter than the voices of fear, right? And I don't know the exact moment where that voice became louder and the other voices became quieter in terms of the dynamics in my head. But I think what I will point to is that there were so many little things along the way that kept telling me, keep going. Like the conversations with Sydney. Um, like I started two months before the surgery, I started getting monthly burst blood vessels in my eyes. Yeah. And that can be a side effect of hyperlactin. I felt like my body kept saying, we need this to change. This yeah. ha- I, the, I was getting these, um, which I still actually get sometimes, which we'll get into, but these hormonal headaches that were so severe and so painful, like my body was saying to me. And and what I actually, I don't know if it's, I'm, it's not a moment, but it is a choice I made that I think made me feel confident in my decision, which was a month before the surgery, which sounds like a wild time to feel <laughs> sure about it, but a month before the surgery, I had made the decision to do it, but I was still really battling with fear. And there was still a part of me that was like, I could still back out if I really needed to. Um, but a month before surgery, I started writing a journal to my body. And um, this was an exercise that I had gotten out of therapy that I was doing for addressing lifelong challenges with my body image and food and exercise. And um, one of the the techniques for helping to kind of heal that relationship is writing a letter to your body and then writing a letter in response Mm. um, from your body. And that was a really powerful exercise for me. And so I thought, you know, I'm about to have my body go through this really major thing and I really want to be in communication with it and I want to prepare it as best I can. And um, one of the ways I can do that is through continuing this exercise. So I started a body journal and it wasn't every night, but it was most nights. I would sit down and I would just write and I would say things like, this thing is coming up. We're going to go through this big change. I know you've been really battling. I believe in you. You're capable. You're amazing. You're going to... And some of the entries were literally walking through the steps of the surgery that I knew about and kind of preparing myself. I also wrote back to myself from my body and I tried to think about that. And it's kind of amazing what shows up when you Mm. write to yourself from the perspective of your body. Every time I've done that, it's flowed right out of me. Like I haven't had to think about it. I, it's really powerful. Um, I definitely recommend it to anyone that's struggling with any sort of physical challenge and it can be scary, right? You're like, what is my body going to say to me? But every time the voice had been so wise, so kind, so loving, like, and, um, I wrote to my adenoma itself and I said, you know, like, thank you for, uh, challenging me and teaching me lessons I would have never learned without you. And I'm ready for you to leave. Please go peacefully. You know, like, (laughs) I mean, and you know, I, I live somewhere between very logical and also very like spiritual and woo woo. And I kind of believe in all of it and none of it. And, um, but what the results of doing this exercise that I can say, I don't think I magically made my body, ready for the surgery by doing this. But I really think I built some neural pathways that 
have hugely served me. And I do think your body has a wisdom and a knowledge that you can only benefit from connecting to. And what I started noticing, and it's happening even as we're recording right now, my body developed this yes sign to me. Like I'll be talking about something and I'll get these full body chills Mm. and, or I'll be doing something. And, and it's like my body now, like it's happening right now as I'm talking to you, our communication, like it sounds so out there, but like, I feel like I know when my body is saying something is right. And, um, so that is such a powerful outcome of that. And, I think that's an exercise I'm going to keep returning to throughout my life when I really want to connect with my body. It's just like writing letters to it and writing letters from it. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. And this is something like, I've never seen or read any of these letters, but I would mm-hmm. be, like we'd be in bed at the end of the day and you'd yeah. be writing in your body journal. It's something you started doing. Yeah. And also leading up to the surgery, you know, three bromocryptine a day mm-hmm. was torture. So you completely went off. That's right. And then- you got better well, for like a short time, but I, then you got worse again. So yeah. then you actually went back on a small dose yes. to, to to sort of tide you over. Yeah. But then you had to go off again to prep Correct. for the surgery. Right. So uh, I think part of the decision was also like this roller coaster of the meds on and off and on and off. And just yeah. recognizing that like it just was not practical to be on this medication yeah. for, 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 you know, what could end up being like a lifetime if you're trying to control yeah. your prolactin for the course of your entire life. You're just Uh like, I can't do it. A hundred percent. And actually when I went off, when, when I was at three pills and I went off, I had been told that, or what I understood was that you could just go right off. Um, But I, then when I did, I experienced a huge spike in depression, a huge spike in anxiety. And I started looking online and a lot of people talked about having withdrawal symptoms. Mm. And so- No one warned you about that, which we were so frustrated about. Yeah, I know. So I had, I went off- you needed to wean down from three and you didn't know that. No. So I went, and and maybe some people can go right off and have no issue, but that was not me. And I went off and then I had this huge spike in negative- things. Then I started to feel a little better. And then I started to feel worse. And then I went on half the pill. And then I felt pretty stable. And then I went off and then I felt crappy. And then I got the surgery. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And the surgery was a fascinating experience. Yeah. Okay. Describe the surgery for our listeners. What do they actually do? Yeah. So I don't know all of the details of that, <laughs> but which is kind of hilarious because it's like people are going into my brain basically and I haven't done, but what I do know, here's what I know. They went through the nose. They go through the nose, which is awesome. They don't have to make an incision anywhere on your head. They go through the nose. They make a small hole I believe in the sphenoid bone right and then they go back through that hole through your nose through a hole that they create in the sphenoid bone towards your brain towards your brain down to the pituitary gland and this is the part I don't know if it's a laser I don't know if it's a tool I don't know what it is my guess is a laser usually when you're doing that kind of thing but they remove the tumor they Get it out of there, and then they pack your brain, and they pack, pack your, your brain. brain. They pack your brain. They pack the site. They put packing in there, and they put some sort of 
something to patch up the hole they made in the sphenoid bone. And there you go. That's interesting. I don't know what it is either. Is it a laser? Is it a blade? No like, like they a stick little some tiny suction. You know, like when you're watching House and you watch them like yes. put something through like a vein and yeah. then grab something. Like what is the tool? Yeah. That's the part that, I'm unsure yeah. about. Yeah. And, but they just go in, they grab it, yeah, they come they, out, they, they pack your out. brain. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> the other kind of hilarious thing about this whole process, which I loved my um, surgeon. He was amazing. He did an incredible job. I'll get into the details of some other things that he told Jesse that he, that, but I, th- what I want to say is I've never met him in person. Right. All of our um all of our appointments were telehealth. Yeah. Before the surgery. Right. I had a pre-op um appointment with his nurse practitioner who was lovely and wonderful but he wasn't there. Yeah. And then even on the day of the surgery, I never saw him. His fellow came into the pre-op and like talked me through what was going to happen and was great. His fellow was awesome. I get brought into the operating room and he's not in there. And they put me out, and the next thing I know, I wake up, and I've just never seen him. And I still haven't seen him since. Yeah. And, you know, I was in the hospital while you were having the procedure. We had to get there, what, 5 a.m. or something? Yeah, like 5.30. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm just, like, waiting in the hospital, and he called me. So I talked to him on the phone, so I know he was there. Totally. (laughs) And what he told Jesse, which is fascinating, is that, so my tumor was pushing up against the carotid artery. Yeah, this is something we didn't know. No, or touching it or something. There's like a membrane, I think. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah, he explained this to me. And because I have no knowledge about what he was talking about, it's like hard for me to remember exactly what he said. Something along the lines of there's like a membrane separating the pituitary from the carotid artery. And and your tumor was like either up against or or like about to push through or actually pushing through through no i don't think it actually no i think it was like touching yeah it was like touching this membrane yeah so he actually removed the membrane and this is something that he told me that he does that is sort of unique yeah it's part of you know his process is like removing this membrane because he said that when he does the chance of regrowth is lower. Yeah. I don't know what any of that means. I know. I mean, you I'm, know? Assuming, I'm assuming it's when the tumor is touching it that he removes it. It's not like he just automatically removes it no matter what. But I don't know. I, I don't know. Because I don't. Yeah, the, I, the, I don't know. And adenoma could be on a different part of the gland. Right. Anyway. But, but that, it's also, yes. I, I was just thinking, you know, right before you went in for the surgery, I recorded the episode with Kristen about acromegaly. Yes, Which that's is right. a pituitary tumor. Yeah. And hers was wrapping around her carotid artery. Right. So there, like, if you have a tumor that is like messing with the carotid artery, yeah. sometimes it can become inoperable and life-threatening. Yep. yep. So that, that was like a mind-blowing revelation of like, you know, was your tumor heading to wrap around the carotid artery? Yeah. Would there have been this whole complication that could have been life-threatening or inoperable that no doctor had ever mentioned to us. Yes. So, you know, these are like the questions that that you got to ask your doctor about. Like, yeah. you know, and that's why I love doing this, like crowdsourcing information and kind of sharing multiple people's experiences, uh-huh. coming back and touching base again with you, because mm-hmm. I, I know for a fact that so many people who have pituitary adenomas are searching for any sort of like real world answer. Yeah. And you were you were one of those people, and then yeah. I've heard from many people who've listened to the podcast or found you know your clip from your pituitary adenoma on TikTok <laughs> from years ago. Like people still right. interact with that post years later. Yeah. So 
Anyway, so this was just another thing in this long, long list of things that doctors didn't really tell us about. And another thing this is reminding me is something they also told me is that um, the longer you're on the medication, uh, the more, and I'm sorry if I'm not getting this, I can't remember if it's the longer you're on it or the more you go on and off of it or whatever it is, the the kind of the harder it is to remove the tumor, the tumor Mm -hmm. changes in its how sticky it is, or I I can't remember the exact (laughs) reasoning, but, but basically if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm going to be on the medication for years, or I'm going to try going on and off and, and sort of navigating that way. And when the symptom load of the meds gets too high, I'll go off. And then when the prolactin side effects get too high, I'll go back on. Um, And then maybe down the line, I can get the surgery if it's too hard to manage. The longer you do that dance, the harder it is to remove the tumor. Yeah. They said the longer you're on the medication, the harder they said something about like it gets stickier or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. The harder it is to actually grab and remove yeah, right. with whatever tool it is that right. they do that with. Right, which I was also never told. <laughs> no, never you know told. I mean? Like when you're yeah. making these calculations of like, yeah. I'm going to be on this med for years right. to figure out if I can continue to be on it for years or if I need to or if I'm going to do the surgery. Yeah. You know, the fact that doing that could prevent you from getting the surgery. Right. Obviously, many more years than than your journey, which was... Yeah. You know what? Your first episode was like two and a half years ago, and we discovered it six years. And you had been dealing with it for three years, Mm -hmm. so like yeah, five or six years. Yeah, no, actually, probably like six and a half years at this point because it was so soon after we started dating. Right. Anyway, so (laughs) so many things like this is one of those impossible calculations because there's just too many choices, and and you took the time that you needed. Mm-hmm. To like feel really good and like you'd made the right choice, mm-hmm. and you eventually did choose to get the surgery. You have the surgery. Yeah. Talk to me about waking up from the surgery. How did you feel? When I first woke up, I was in pain and I was nauseous, but I mean, not horribly, but I was to a degree where I asked for some more meds and they gave them to me. I was pretty uncomfortable for the first. So for before I go into it, I want to say. I talked to Sydney about her experience and I had a, there was some overlap, but there were also some really distinctly different experiences yes. between us. So I just want to say my experience is not a model for how it's going to go for somebody else. Right. We um, were surprised at how different yours was. Yeah, totally. But I, but I will also say it's leading down a road to a similar feeling about the experience, which is a really right. good one Yeah. in the end. But the steps along the way have been, were fairly different. So for me, when I woke up, I was pretty uncomfortable. Um, And you have to go get a CT scan right away so that they can make sure that, basically so that you can eat and drink. And they want to make sure that the surgery was generally successful and that things are looking good enough that you won't have to go back in. Um, And so... Like they were like moving me from the bed I was on onto the CT scan. It was freezing in the room. I was so freaked out because they tell you, 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 so the recovery, you can't lay down for like two and a half weeks laying all the way down. And so um, they had me lay down for the CT scan or was it a CT? Yeah, it was a CT. And I was like, I can't lay down. I can't lay down, you know, and they're just like. You know, it's okay. This is for a short amount of time. This is routine. This is what we do. Uh. You know, um, but I was I was pretty uncomfortable. And um 
I don't want to get into too much detail, but the nurse that I was with, I I ended up being buddies with her in the end, but she had a very uh, surly, aggressive, mm. um, talkative, wanted to talk to me a lot. Also, like just a lot of energetic stuff that just felt like really abrasive. And um, and she went on lunch and this other nurse came in and she was like the opposite. She was like soothing and sweet. And she propped me up with these pillows and she got me another blanket and she upped my pain meds. And then she got the okay for me to eat. And she brought me some like strawberry jello and cold apple juice, which my God was like the best thing I'd ever had. <laughs> and suddenly I just started to feel way better. This team of students comes in to like ask me questions about my experience with the adenoma and, um, the medication that I'd taken before it was, which was like a fascinating time to talk. Cause I was still pretty out of it, you know? Um, and I, the hospital was really busy and I actually didn't get a bed. So you spend the night and if things look okay, um, they, they let you, uh, go home the next day. And one of the things they really monitor for is how much you're urinating. Right. Um, because your pituitary gland, um, affects your sodium, how your body regulates sodium. Yes, like in diabetes yes, insipidus. Yes, yes. That we did an, another recent episode on with Tracy that was fascinating. Yes. And that's, they, you were on watch for diabetes insipidus yes, after I was. the surgery. They're, yes, I was. Yeah, that's something that can be a complication of pituitary adenoma surgery. Yeah. Oftentimes temporarily. Yeah. But I think in very rare cases, permanently. Uh, I think in very, very rare yeah, cases, very rare. It, it, it almost never, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, one of, so one of the risks that they talk about is um, that, you know, anytime you operate on the pituitary gland, you can permanently affect its function. function. Right, right. So um, I had no complications. They didn't have to do any sort of spinal tap or, um, you know, sometimes people get um, a leak of brain fluid. Like th those are all things that can happen. I was so fortunate. I didn't have any of that. Um, but I did start urinating quite a bit. Well, they had a catheter in too, which was also the first time I'd ever had that. That is so uncomfortable. Um, so they were, and they do it so that they can measure your urine and also during surgery, obviously. Um, and I also had like six IVs in. There was like one on my foot and one. So anyway, um, I they watch out for how much you're drinking, how much you're urinating. And I was right on the line of like too much overproducing. Yeah. So every three hours they had to come and take my blood. And um, they did not take it from the IV. They they kept poking me. And by the end of my stay, my arm was completely black and blue. Like yeah. it was wild looking. Um, but they they didn't, I didn't get a hospital room for about five hours. Um, and that was a little, I mean, it was fine. I was fine. But, yeah, you know. The family was like, because right. we couldn't get in to see you. Till I and was up in. Yeah. I was the only one there. Right. And we're just waiting to hear back about when you get a room. Yeah. And your family is like. Yeah. What is going on? Why haven't you got in to see her? I'm like, they they told me because there's no rooms in the whole hospital. Yeah, yeah. And like, they're going to get a room as soon as they can. Right. And then I'll get in to see her and then people can, can come visit. Yes. So. Totally. So, you know, I mean, it was it was definitely a little bit of a shuffle. And the other kind of complicated thing was that 
so they had cleared me from the CT. There had been a message sending out saying, you know, she can have food and liquid. And so I got my strawberry jello and my cold apple juice. But then like an hour later, they were saying, actually, the person that needed to approve it didn't approve this. And so now you can't eat and drink. Right. And I was so thirsty and so hungry. And I, and I, so, and literally the kitchen was going to close. And I mean, there was this whole thing, um, which, you know, I mean, these, in the grand scheme, not a big deal. But, you know, in the moment, you're just drugged out and, you know, oh, yeah. so post surgery when uncomfortable. You, you haven't been able to eat in like, what, 24 hours uh-huh. or something. Yeah. And- yeah, and you're, you're on these fluid restrictions because they have to make sure you don't have diabetes insipidus. Yeah. And you were on fluid restrictions for... Well, yeah, we... For weeks after. Yeah, we'll get yeah. into that. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you spend the night and be also because I was on watch and that, you know, my urine levels were right on the line, uh, they were waking me up every three hours to take my blood. And um, Jesse slept on the cot in the hospital with us on a really uncomfortable, but thank you for doing it, uh, hospital cot. And um, But overall, I felt great. Like I was so, I was ready to have so much nausea because I had heard that's a thing that can happen. I was ready to have, not be able to look at phones, not be able to have the lights on. Like, like I was ready to feel like I have, but it's having a 24 hour migraine, you know, and yeah. um, be really, I, for a week, actually, I was prepared to not look at my screen. Because that um, was Sydney's experience. Yes. And I immediately could look at screens. I had no sensitivity to light. Uh, I didn't experience that at all. Um, so that's a range, you know, obviously of, yeah. of things that can happen. Um, but I... Yeah, and and I was so relieved. And I wasn't in a crazy amount of pain. You know, I was in a fair amount of pain, but it was manageable with the meds. Um, and so, yeah, we, we stayed overnight. Um, by the next day, I was released. And what they told me before releasing me was um, that I got to have four days of just... Drink as much as you want, eat whatever you want, whatever. But on the fifth day, uh, I had, it was this, they kind of routinely did this for people because diabetes insipidus is so common as a side effect and they can't, they'd have to have a nurse at your home regulating your regulating your sodium levels 24 hours in order to ensure that you don't have it. So they basically assume that you will and they put you on, what was it, a one liter? Yeah. One liter fluid restriction every 24 hours. You can only have one liter of, for 24 of hours. Of any kind of fluid. So you can't have any soups or sauces or, you know, juices. I mean, any kind of fluid. Um, so I opted just for water because it was like, if I'm having only a liter of fluids a day, it's going to be water. And I had this liter water bottle and it was so torturous. I was so thirsty. I was trying... I also you know, was completely stuffed up. My nose, I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I had to sit sitting up, asleep sitting up. So my throat was really dry. And when I was, I was sleeping maybe an hour at a time and I had to breathe through my mouth and I'd wake up with this like, 
like dry, dry yeah. throat. So I had to, uh, throughout the day, make sure I left enough water for a cup by my bed throughout the night. Like yeah. it was just, that part was tricky. And you had to stay elevated. You couldn't lie all the way down. No. Yeah. So I had this wedge pillow that we kept sh- shuffling from upstairs where the bed was to downstairs where the couch was. And yeah. um, my, my best friend, uh, Jillian came and stayed with us for a few days and helped take care of Which me. Which was so helpful because so I, amazing. I started to flare up from, caretaking which yeah. was something you know this is like something we've had a lot of discussions about yeah it's like a occupational hazard of, of caretaking <laughs> when you have a chronic illness yourself yeah. yeah and like you know getting up at like four in the morning to get you to the hospital and then spending mm-hmm. the night and mm-hmm. you know all, all that stuff like I felt like I did a great job the first couple of days and then I started to fade yeah. And it was just perfect that Jillian came because I was like, I'm yeah. going to take a nap. <laughs> yeah. And please, and I highly recommend any procedure leaning on others and not yeah. and not putting all the caretaking on one person, um, especially when you need as much help as I needed after this. You know, I got up and I would walk half a block and I'd be exhausted and then I'd go lay down. You know, I couldn't bend over. They don't that you, you're not supposed to bend over or bear down. Um I had some constipation issues, which really made the not bearing down thing really hard. You know, I mean, there was a lot going on. I couldn't, sh- um, you're not supposed to blow your nose. And when I'm in the shower, I blow my nose. And so I would literally, Jillian would like sit in the bathroom with me while I showered, which I, we had like a shower stool that I could just sit on. And the whole time I'd just be saying to her, I'm not going to blow my nose. I'm not going to blow my <laughs> nose. And she would go, you're not going to blow your nose. And um, They give you a, uh, it's like a neti pot type thing. We call it a nose bottle um, <laughs> and you, and you squeeze it and it, it flushes your, your nose. I was doing that three times a day. Um, you know, I, I had this uh, saline spray I was doing, you know, there's just a lot to sort of keep a track of, especially and when you're feeling meds, out of it. A ton of meds. Yes. Like a whole med oh, schedule gosh. you were on. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, but, but the whole experience of the recovery was, I think, the thing you were most scared about. Physically, yeah. Yeah. So how would you rate that on like a one to 10, where 10 yeah. is the most uncomfortable thing you've ever experienced? Yeah. And zero is like you're on a cloud sleeping yeah. comfortably. You I know? mean, for me, it was like a five and a half. Like, yeah. it was not a, I mean, pain wise, it was like a four. Or mm. four, three and a half. Like pain, I was not in a lot of pain. Discomfort, certainly. Yeah. I was uncomfortable a lot of the time. Um, but that's just physically. M- mentally and emotionally, that was the part I was not prepared for. Yeah. And so talking about, you know, you're like gaslighting yourself. Yeah. And then being so scared that you were going to have the surgery and nothing emotionally would change. Yeah. And then, I, I you know... The day after the surgery, you're like, nothing's changed. You know, it's everything's awful. And I'm like, Andy, you've got to give it like a couple months, you know, and I could not talk you into giving it time. Okay. That was not my experience. (laughs) I wouldn't say the day after the surgery. I would say like for the whole time Jillian was here, I was okay. I was doing okay emotionally. I was, you know, I was tired. I wasn't really doing much every day. I was taking a lot of like cat naps and but I was like yeah I'm in recovery and then I would say getting into that second week and especially on the heels of they kept extending the fluid restriction and 
And then my emotions were totally dysregulated. I was feeling super depressed. I was feeling super anxious. I was feeling like I should be this new person and I'm not. And it got worse the farther into the recovery I got because I kept thinking, well, by this week, certainly I should be feeling better. And I think it was actually at its peak in terms of my um, sort of woe is me feeling about it at the, you know, four week mark where I'm like, okay, by now. Yeah. You know, and even at the six week checkup, which is your last checkup after the surgery and and then you get another one in a year, but um, but they, you know, they take your blood, they do all your scans, and they gave me like a thumbs up, like everything looks good, you're doing well, everything's regulated. Which by the way, I wanna say the day of my surgery, in the morning before I went in, my prolactin was like ninety-six or something. And when I got out of surgery, it was three. The same day. Same day. Yeah. I know that that so, shocked me yeah. when I and when then heard by that. the final checkup it had gone up to like six, but that's yeah. really normal. Yeah. Um. So you know, like all of that to say, you know, your body goes through a huge shift, and yet still, it was that thing where logically I could understand that, but from an internal emotional experience, I was like, something is wrong. I'm doing this wrong. I should be feeling better by now. And also Sydney, her experience or what I understood it to be was that pretty quickly she felt the emotional relief of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just kept feeling like, oh my gosh, I feel miserable. Yeah. And I was sure that it would take at least like three months to to really see what the emotional relief could be, especially because I just interviewed Kristen who had talked about having the acromegaly surgery and how it took like... I, th- I think she said like at least a year yeah. for her for her to feel like her uh, hormones had regulated and yeah. her body had adjusted. Yeah. Um, but you were just like, if it hasn't happened by the six week mark, it's never going to happen. <laughs> and you were just like, <laughs> just miserable. I know. And what's funny, you just said three months. It like t- two days ago, it was three months. Yeah. You know, so like, it happened. You started to regulate after at about the two month mark. So, right. Well, what I would say so I had the surgery on October 26th. Um, and I would say I started to feel really good basically when we went on our trip. Yeah. We went to Mexico. Um, we, yeah. we recorded a really fun bonus episode yeah. detailing our entire trip. Yeah. But it was on that trip where you started to feel really good. Good. Yeah. yeah, and I, that was around mid December. Yeah, so that's yeah, like a month and a half, two months. So yeah, I, um, I remember at the six week checkup, you were not there. No, and you were really upset about it. Yeah, but then like within a couple of weeks. Yeah, while we're in the sunshine in Mexico, you're like, yeah, yeah, I feel great. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the other thing is everyone kept saying, not everyone, uh, my endocrinologist in particular said to me, you know, at six weeks you're about ninety percent better. Yeah, and then that ten percent, it's different for everybody when that right. comes. And I was like, I am not 90%. But, you know, then it came to me, well, what does that mean, 90% better? Is that, first of all, does is that counting from back to feeling how you felt before you had surgery, which was pretty crappy emotionally, you know, and, or is it, or is it back to feeling how you felt before you were dealing with all these adenoma issues? Right. Do you know, so what 90% of what, and what is your normal I that thought that it meant ninety percent physically, right. like was the actual physical? Yes. healing right. of the. You know, yes. we we 
like broke through your sphenoid bone and yeah. took something from your brain. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like 90% of that yeah. procedure it healed. I didn't right. think it had anything to do with the emotional state. Right, right. But I could not convince you no, of that. of course not. Yeah. yeah well, no, that was... <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Um, but yeah, on that trip, I just... I, I turned a corner and yeah. I... Um, I started to have way more energy. I started to feel more even. I started to feel more like myself. I started to feel sillier um, and more playful. Like we've been just, you know, when we first met, you know, when you deal with something like this for six years or so, there are parts of yourself that are really affected by it that you don't even remember losing. Mm. And it's not like I'm a, I was a wildly different person. Um, the scale of these things is small, but it adds up. And, you know, we're singing songs while we're brushing our teeth and I'm prancing around the house. And, yeah. you know, like I, these things that are part of who I am that I just really haven't had the energy for or access to right. in so long. And it it was amazing, this feeling of like coming back to myself um, and rediscovering things, but also taking with me the lessons I've learned over these six years and, and the, the sort of um, the perspective of how lucky it is just to like get through a day without pain or without depression or, you know, I mean, that appreciation for that is huge. Um, and then about, I guess, two weeks ago, I went off my birth control. <laughs> yeah. So this is something that you'd been talking about with your endocrinologist for a while. Like, yeah. Once I go, once I go through the surgery, once yeah. my hormones regulate, is it a good idea to go off birth control and give my body a chance to regulate itself naturally in a way that it hasn't since you were what, 22? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and exactly. your doctor said, yeah, that's absolutely a good idea. Yeah, and a lot of patients do that and, um, you know, let your pituitary gland do its thing without any interference. And mm -hmm. um, so that, I started that process about two weeks ago, what, well, I went, so, you know, for those of you that take birth control, you'll know, or at least the pill form, you'll know that, um, you know, you have three weeks of active pills that have the hormones in them. And then you, typically you have a week of, uh, placebo pills that don't have any hormones and that's when you get your period. And, um, so I had the week, the placebo week, which is, I normally wouldn't take pills anyway. And then, this past this past week started, and I didn't take a pill when I normally would have, and I started to feel a, like a wreck again. <laughs> I just yeah. felt totally uh, dysregulated. Um, I was at lack of energy. Um, I was feeling like really cranky, really emotional, breast tenderness, like all these things that it just was like, oh my god, you know, I'm. I just got through this. I just started to feel better. And then I made a choice that's making me feel worse again, you know? And and Jesse even was like, is this too soon to go off? You know, should you be feeling better for longer before you change things again? And then part of me was like, maybe, but I also, you know, I just, I don't know. It's And I'm in the midst of that now. I, I am still navigating. I do think I'm feeling a little better. Absolutely. Um, yeah. After having that kind of first week. Um, but I, yeah, you know, you, you constantly are making choices uh, that you don't know what the outcome is and you don't know how long you should stick with it 
to see if it will get better right. or switch back to what you were doing just because you know that was working. Every um, choice you'd make. You need weeks to find out what the results will be. Right, right. Yeah. And that's a tricky, that's a really, and that's actually true for a lot of, um, I mean, for you, for your, your medication oh, journey, you know, with, with uh, mast cell. And it's, th- th- there's a lot of examples of how that happens. Um, but we'll see, you know, I mean, it's very easy for me to go back on birth control that, that yeah. I can do very quickly and easily. And I'm going to try to stick with it um, and see what I feel and what happens. I mean, so I had the Sonoma for six years and I was living with that and and I that went away. And then I was on birth control, like you said, for like 13 years. And that just changed. I mean, there's a lot of changes that my body is going through right now. And I'm really just trying to see what happens. Yeah, know? totally. But I think the the through line has been that when you mess with your hormones, yes. you have intense emotional yep. side effects. hundred percent. That are like clinically related yeah. to the hormonal changes. Yep. And there's been so much self-torture yeah. over yeah. whether or not that's true. Yep. How do you feel about that now? Is that true? It is true. <laughs> <laughs> and I, even when you say that it's true, I can I sense hesitation from you. Yeah, no, it is true. I think the hesitation is, um, it's like I'm sad that I have to prove that to myself. I'm sad mm. that I even question it, and um, and I know that won't go away. Even wow. when, even as much as I logically understand it. I know there are states that I experience from a hormonal imbalance that will continue to bring that up to myself as a challenge. And um, my therapist actually gave me a really good tool uh, that sort of addresses this, which is she said, when you start to doubt yourself like that, when you start to feel like, is this me? Is it something I'm doing if I just tried hard enough? Is this is this really because of this this imbalance? Is this, you know, I don't believe myself that you just see that as a a side effect as a symptom just as much as you would if you had a headache or if you had um you know nausea or that th- these feelings of self doubt are also a symptom they are not a truth um yeah. that you're experiencing and i i don't i don't know i i think this desire to it's funny because you'd think it'd be easier to just blame it on the, I mean, emotionally, that's way easier to be like, yeah, it's this thing, right? But your brain wants to be like, it's something you're doing that, even though that's worse in some ways, you can control that. Mm. Like you could make a choice if you just found the right choice or you just did the right thing or you. Okay, so you know, to admit that it is a symptom means that you have to admit that you don't have control mm-hmm. in the way that you'd want over your own emotional state. And as someone with OCD, that's a really hard wow. thing. That's fascinating. And also as someone with OCD, it's really easy to get into magical thinking mm. where, and you know, th- th- this is something I'm very curious to talk about. Um, it's a little off topic, but you know, we live in this era where manifestation, this idea of manifesting things is very popular. Um, and is is a really hot topic of like, 
you know, you just think in the right way and you, you write it down and you make it happen, you know? And, um, with OCD, that's a really dangerous thing to invest your mental energy into because you can also then believe that you can make bad things happen just by how you're thinking. Um, and thought is powerful and I will not deny that, but you know, with OCD, it's like, oh my gosh, I could make myself go blind if I just think about it enough. You know, it's like that kind of thought, that kind of thing, or I could make myself depressed just by how I'm thinking, or I could make myself think I'm experiencing these side effects, but I'm, it's actually just mentally, I'm just causing it. You know, that is both a terrifying and alluring thought as somebody with OCD, because your brain is preconditioned to want control. At least I'm just speaking from my experience, but so there's a lot of mental gymnastics that happen with all of this and um, a lot of self doubt and a lot of magical thinking where it's like, I'm causing this. And, you know, I think this aligns with a lot of storylines of interviewees you've had before where Doctors have told them this is in your brain. And so then you start to doubt yourself. And then you start to, okay, let's see. Can I turn it on and off if I really focus? If I, you know, whatever it is, the the connection of the mind and the body, that is such a rich and deep and complex relationship. And when we're talking about things like chronic illness or medical challenges, like it's really tricky because you can't divorce those things. They are inherently connected, but you also can't solely say, oh, this is in my head. I'm causing this by the way I'm thinking, you know, um, that I think that is also dangerous. (laughs) So it is, it's really tricky. It's really hard. That absolutely fascinating. Thank you for processing through that. And sharing that in real time. I yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. of course. Thanks for providing the space. Yeah. So, okay, before you went off birth control, yeah. you know, we went on our trip to Mexico and it seemed like your hormones regulated yeah. enough that you could start to feel mm-hmm. the effects of the surgery. Yeah. And what did that feel like? Did Did that feel like the, you know, was there vindication? Was there mm-hmm. joy, exuberance? self-doubt like what is that moment when you finally feel the thing that you've been chasing which is yeah. like if we get rid of this uh this tumor yeah then maybe i will feel more like myself yeah is that the experience that you had yes i would say that it is and i would say when you go through something like this and you have a surgery in the hopes of something like that um your fantasy about what that will be like and feel like you know, reality is never going to be the exact same thing. Um, And that's okay. That's a beautiful thing. Like, I think, you know, your imagination around how you will feel better, who you will be when you are quote unquote healed, you know, on the other side of this great challenge, you know, that um, the reality of that, and I've experienced that going through your journey with you as well. Like, the reality of that is way more complex, mm-hmm. is way more dynamic, um, is more colorful, is more three-dimensional, you know, and that and that has its parts that are ch- 
more challenging than you imagine. And it's parts that are more, um, it's like imagined joy versus lived joy is a really different thing. And I'd rather have lived joy, even if it is more complex. Mm. And so my experience feeling those things, it came with a lot of feelings and it came with, you know, this, um, you know, I'm still not like functioning at my highest level, whatever the heck that even means. Because when you reach what you would have imagined that is, there's, there, your brain is always going to what else can I be doing or what more can I do to make myself feel better? But, um, but I actually did feel this groundedness in like appreciating where I was at and what I was feeling and what I was capable of now in a way I haven't in a long time. And I had this moment on the trip too, where I was like in my bathing suit or, you know, and I I will also say, and I've, I've mentioned this a little bit that I'm on this journey to loving my body and, and working on my relationship with my body. And I was like in my bathing suit and I was looking in the mirror and I got really emotional because I thought to myself, what have I been doing? Like, I have been hating on this body. I have been fighting this body. I have been saying so many negative things to myself about this body that has done so many incredible things for me. And I'm beautiful and I'm capable. And I, you know, I had this, yes, I had this moment that was like so revelatory and so empowering. And, um, and that was incredible. And, and I can't say whether or not I would have had access to that if I had had the surgery or if I hadn't, but I, it's not worth speculating on because I had it. And, um, and I'm continuing to explore that feeling and I do feel different. And how much of that is the surgery? How much of that is this um, moment in my life where I get to turn a page and say, you know, this is a distinct time where I went through this major thing and I get to experience this new chapter. I don't, I don't know what is what part, you know, but I, I think, yes, I have, I have had what I was hoping for and it looks totally different than I imagined it. And in some ways the same, and it's all, I'm just grateful for for all of it, you know? Yeah. What advice do you have for someone out there who is where you were a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. taking the medication, struggling through it, not sure what to do next. Yeah. What advice can you possibly give to someone about whether or not to get the surgery? <laughs> yeah, that's a really tricky question. Um, because like you said that my doctor, my endocrinologist had said, you know, so many people have the surgery and they say, or so many of her patients, um, I don't know what I was waiting for. I'm so, I, I, it was so, so torturous to be on these meds. I wish I had gotten it sooner. And, you know, I don't know if I feel that way. I'm really glad I got it. Um, I'm really proud of myself for taking that leap. And I don't know if I would have been ready any sooner. Yeah. Um, and so I don't have regret about the timing. I will say, based on my personal experience, and my medical team, which was like incredible and had, you know, you want to do your research, you want to make sure you're in good hands, but all of that in mind, 100%, I would say, keep it on the table as an option. And if you 
for me, it took six years of struggling to be like, this is the choice I want to make. And I don't think I could have gotten there without it. But if you, and like I said, even up to a month before the surgery, I was like, I'm going to pull out of this potentially. So I also booked it not being totally sure. My advice would be with a major surgery like this, you can't be sure. You can't be 100% certain that the feeling is this is going to be the right choice. But the voices, the voice that this is a choice I want to make for myself versus the voice of fear, when that balance, the 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 voice of fear is quieter than the other one happens and you have tried the avenues and you have like listened to that other voice and start making the steps towards it. Even, even if you have to tell yourself, I can pull out of this at any time, I could decide not to do this the day before surgery, you know, whatever it is, give yourself the option. Cause I personally, I think it is really worth it. Yeah. Well, I have one more question for you. Yeah. If you could go back in time, you know, five or six years ago and talk to younger Andy (laughs) when she was just beginning to deal with this tumultuous chronic health problem. Uh With everything you've experienced, is there one piece of advice, if you could distill it down into one thing, Mm. what's the message that you'd want to give to younger self to help ease your passage? Yeah, wow. That's so tricky. Because it feels like it would have been different at different points of this journey. Um, But I guess the most encompassing thing I could say is to like work on your relationship with your body and really try to build a way to listen and a way to hear what it's telling you and a way to know when it's saying yes, because that journal and that connection I have now, whether or not I had gotten the surgery, if I had had more ways or more assuredness about how to check in with my body and communicate with it throughout the journey, I think it could have maybe been a slightly smoother ride. Mm. And I also went into therapy to heal my relationship with my body, you know, three years into this journey. So I think that, I think that would be my main advice is like connect with your body, heal your relationship. Um, It's never going to be perfect. I'm I'm constantly still working on on that. Yeah. And I will be my whole life and it's never going to be this like your perfect version of your healed self. Um and that's okay. And it's still so worth working on that. So that's that would be my advice. Yeah. Yeah, cuz the, the the way that this hormonal imbalance affected your emotions, it affected your body yeah. as well. Yeah. And I think that you blamed yourself for both of them. And yeah. now looking looking at it through the lens of to not blame yourself is to let go of control. Yeah. Is fascinating. But sometimes letting go of control is crucial. A hundred percent. It's so healthy to do. And realizing what are the things you can control. And yeah. for you, it was the choice of what to do. The choice of whether or not to be on medication, whether uh-huh. or not to get surgery. Yeah. Those were the things that were in your control. Yes. And I'm really glad hearing you say that you wouldn't change the timing. Yeah. Because there are times when I wonder if I should have pushed you. Mm. And 
I know that I shouldn't have. You yeah, know. no, you were incredible. But, you did well, a, you, you did an amazing job. It definitely like occurred to me. Yeah. Some somewhere al- al- along the road, just seeing how bad it got. Yeah. I was like, I wonder if I could have saved you suffering if I had been a little more insistent. Mm. But I, I still know it wasn't my place, and I'm really glad to hear you say that you needed the time that you had. Yeah. To process through it. But that's what you have control over is making those choices. Yeah. And I'm so proud of you. And I'm Thanks. so thrilled Thanks. to be on the other side of this thing. Yeah. And it was, this happened in the year in which I got a diagnosis and started to improve. Yeah. And there's been this sort of back and forth in our relationship of when you're feeling good, I'm feeling bad. Or when I'm feeling good, you're feeling <laughs> yeah, bad. Yeah, we're on the teeter-totter. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, there's so much sickness mm-hmm. between the two of us. That we'd never had the chance to feel good together. And then in Mexico, it just clicked into place. I know. And we both felt good. It was so weird. There was this moment we were, uh, the last day in Mexico, we splurged on one night at this like really she-she resort. Mm -hmm. And we had our own hot tub on on a balcony off our room. (laughs) And we were in the hot tub. We had like snacks and drinks and we had suits playing on our computer. We've been binging suits. Yeah, we had, we had. And I was sitting in the hot tub and I just started to cry because I was, I couldn't believe where we were. Yeah, I I think the sun was setting. Yes, it was, and it was like, after everything we've been through and how much we have struggled to feel good, like it just felt so good. And, yeah. and, and again, I wouldn't skip the journey to get there, you know? Right. And um, yeah, I, I think, you know, just, I am curious from you um, what, cause you know, you're asking me this question, but this is a unique opportunity since I'm in a relationship with you as your guest to ask you, is there any advice you would give or any perspective you have on supporting a partner through something like this? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> the self-control to not push what you think is right is really difficult. Mm-hmm. And that was, a skill that I was working on cultivating during this whole process. Yeah. Um, also, because of the emotional turmoil that you experienced, mm-hmm. there was times where you felt really bad yeah. and you weren't able to be kind. Yeah. And that's something that I know deeply, intimately from the other side, Yeah. from the side that you were on of like so many times during the years that I was so sick, I could not find the energy to be kind. Mm -hmm. And it didn't even occur to me that I was doing it. I Mm -hmm. had a kind of a realization of it at one point during our relationship where I was like, wow, I think I'm being rude, you know, (laughs) and I'm being rude to this person that I love so much because I'm in pain. It has nothing to do with her and I'm taking it out on her. Mm. And I never wanted to be that person. And I really worked to not be that person. And there was times where you were that person towards me. Yeah, totally. and, And having the presence of mind to put that aside mm-hmm. and to not internalize it, to not take it personally, to not comment on it, to let you do it. Yeah. That was really difficult, but that's something that I have yeah. been working at. And I think in both cases, if it is, if it's hurtful enough, we will talk about it. Absolutely. You know, like that, yeah. that's not to say you have a hall pass if you're in pain to be a jerk, you know? Um, right. Right. But just to know when, when is the moment to, to bring it up and talk about it and push back. And when is the moment to say like, okay, that one, I can let that one go. Yeah, and the moment is when you're both feeling good. That's when you talk about it. You say, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, this, you're doing such a great job getting through these really hard things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for I think for me, it's like something I had to become aware of is when I'm flared up, I'm not always 
treating people the way that I want to. Totally. And that's a skill that I've had to work really hard at. And yeah. I, you know, that's something that I want to help support you in also. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, saying it in a way that's not being a dick is important. <laughs> um, yeah. Just like seeing someone you love in pain is so hard. It's so hard. And I know that we're all, we've been switched for so long where you've had to see me in pain for so long. Mm -hmm. So that really gave me a lot of patience to try to support you through it, mm -hmm. you know? But then also like I had to make sure I was taking care of myself or I'd flare up and, you know, we kind of teetered into that for a while. Yeah. yeah. And that was really tricky as well. It's a very complex thing to be a caregiver. For sure. It's something that's not talked about enough. Yeah, I agree. Of how difficult it is to be a caregiver. And, you yeah. know, you and I have both lived on both sides of it. We both have experience of both sides of it. Yeah. And when you're sick and you don't feel good and you need to feel better, there's this element of like, I'm going to sit on this couch and play Warframe <laughs> and you can't touch me. You can't bother yeah. me. And there's this element of like settling in to try to find anything that feels good and feeling justified yeah. in that. Yeah, totally. And there's an element of that that can be a bit of a release. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side, like as a caregiver, you don't get a break. It really, it gave me so much more respect yeah. for caregivers. And yeah. for me, it was just like a couple weeks. Yeah. You know, like for you, it was six years uh, and I mean, there's people out there that caregiving is a lifelong thing. Yeah, 100%. So, well, yeah. I mean, that's something I'm curious. I would be interested to ask the audience about if that's when we first started dating and, um, you know, you also didn't have a diagnosis. So, you know, I was searching a couple years in, I was searching for resources of people who were dating people with chronic illness. <laughs> and what's really hard when you don't have a diagnosis is, you know, there were people that were like, okay, you know, wives of cancer patients, or, you know, there were specific groups for, but there wasn't just a general space for partners of people with chronic illness yeah, and, or disability or whatever health challenge. Right. So, um, so I would be curious about an episode maybe, or a couple with, with couples that, um, that you're interviewing both and and you're talking about partnership. I mean, you already cover that a lot with people who have partners that are on the show. Yeah. Um, and we had, we did that with Evan and Cammie really early on, like episode six or something. Oh yeah, and that's it was right. Yeah. Really, really great. But yeah. I, I'm always open to that. Yeah. A thousand percent. If yeah. you're listening and you are a couple and you want to share your story, mm -hmm. reach out. You know, I'm always looking for people to interview. If you have a disease we haven't covered on the podcast in particular, I'm always trying to cover as many diseases as possible. Yeah. But even if we've covered it and you have a different story, a different perspective that you want to share, if totally. you're in a couple and you want to share that experience, reach out to me, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. This show is completely driven by the guests and yeah. the stories that we have to share. So that is, you know, the most crucial thing. Yep. So I'm always looking for that. Or not even, I mean, a couple, and that's like a romantic relationship is a really particular dynamic that's interesting to explore. But anyone who has a primary caregiver, yeah. you know, what that relationship is like, how you navigate it, especially if you're someone who feels like you've developed skills um, that you want to share about those yeah, types of like things. Like a parent and a child. Yeah, and, yeah. or a friend. It's or a, a. It's a huge piece yeah. of chronic illness is the people who care for us and totally. who love us. Yeah. Um. Well, Andy, you did an incredible job today. Hey, so did you. We're, we're coming up towards like two hours here. Oh, this is dang, a, Lil yeah, Wang. Okay. Dang yeah, Wang. Yeah, yeah, that's, this is an incredible episode. Yeah. So much information to share. Yeah. I really appreciate you being so open. Of course. Is there anything that you want to plug or direct our listeners towards? Uh, 
not not really. I mean, I I should be better about sharing stuff on social media. I don't really have much of a presence right now. Um, if you live in Seattle or near the Seattle area, I'm costuming a show at Seattle Shakespeare Company this spring. Yeah, called the Bed Trick, um, which is a new play, uh, and. It's, it's fabulous. It's based off of which Shakespeare play? Um, it's based off of um, All's Well That Ends Well, um, but it's not. It's not based. It's not based off of that. It's based off of a question in that play around a thing called the bed trick, hmm. um, which occurs in a few Shakespeare plays, and it's basically when you. Uh, get into bed with someone you think you know who it is, and then they switch. Yeah, in the dark. And um, Fraser did that once. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. Totally. And yeah. you know, it's often used with as this Niles and Doctor Shankman, one of the best episodes. Oh my of god, Frasier. that's right. Yeah. But that wasn't intentional, right? There, there, right. there was no intent behind it. No, no, no. Yeah. So yeah. in 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 these examples, there's an intention of somebody's like, once you're in there, we're gonna switch places, mm. and you know, and um, so and it's often played as this comedic thing or this thing that works out in the end, all's well that ends well. The title itself kind of <laughs> uh, alludes to that, but is it actually comical? Is that a funny thing to do, especially in this dialogue in this era where we talk about consent and um. How does the gender of the person it's happening to affect our perception of it and all those things? Yeah. So it's a modern play, actually, um, but it deals with that question and uh, it has a few allusions to Shakespeare. And um, it's a great play. It's a great new play. It's um, it's happening. Oh, see, and I should really know the dates. Um, but if you go on Seattle Shakespeare's uh, website, Seattle Shakespeare Company, um, you can find it. Um, and I'm doing the costumes for it. Yeah. So that's a lot of fun. Awesome. And yeah. we'll be recording a new bonus episode very soon because we're almost through the end of January. Yeah. Uh, probably in the next week or two. Yeah. You know, we got way behind schedule when we went to <laughs> Mexico because our December episode came out halfway through January. But we already have plenty to talk about. Those are always yeah. so much fun. Totally. Um, yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing you. your story. Yeah. You did an incredible job. Yeah. And I... I, it's always a continuing journey, but this felt like a moment where we really needed to take a new snapshot. Yeah. Because the question of whether or not to get surgery with a pituitary adenoma is so complex. Yeah. I really hope that this can reach someone out there who's trying to make that decision for themselves. Totally. And Andy, your experience and expertise on making <laughs> that choice, living that choice, living through surgery is incredibly valuable to share. So thank, thank you. you so of much. Of course. And and also, if if you do have more specific questions or you just want to talk to me further about it, don't hesitate to email um, the Major Pain Podcast. Yeah. And Jesse can put you in touch with me. And I know there's someone who has already done that who I've not corresponded with yet that I am going to reach out to. So <laughs> I, my apologies for my delay in that. I, I think now is actually a better time for me to contact you anyway with the, the perspective I have. Um, but yeah, for anyone who's listening to this and thinking, I'd really like to have a more um, in-depth conversation. Um, I'm here and available. Absolutely. Majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. Amazing. Andy, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal 
tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncy, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.